0: Hello and welcome to Art in the Garden, the Garden Art Installation Program podcast. In this edition of the series, I sit down to speak to Patrick Doherty, whose work Easy Rider was installed in the Dumbarton Oaks Ellipse from 2010 to 2012. Mildred Bliss recounts first dreaming of the Ellipse as a child, and Beatrix Farrand helped to realize this dream with the construction finishing on the room in 1933. The ellipse of the 1930s was surrounded by a dense yet soft hedge of boxwood with a single jet fountain in its center. By the late 1950s, however, with the boxwood declining, consulting landscape architect Alden Hopkins made the decision to replace the boxwood with American hornbeams, which in turn would grow into an aerial hedge that remains the design blueprint for the room today. In 1967, Ruth Havey, one of Farron's original design assistants at Dumbarton Oaks, Oversaw the placement of a Provençal style fountain in the center of the existing ellipse pool, relocating it from its previous home on the construction site of the new pre Columbian galleries. Easy Rider works in geometric harmony with the shape and directionality of the aerial hedge in the ellipse. Patrick installed 15 of his signature stick works around the periphery of the space, weaving the elegant sapling structures into the hedge, which whirl round and around, beckoning a visitor to interact with them. The inhabitable forms, replete with doors and windows, resemble something energetically akin to a merry-go-round, and ignite a childlike excitement in the visitor. The piece is transformative, almost magical, something from our deep past. Patrick creates approximately ten site-specific installations around the world each year, using found saplings to create his stickworks, which all seem to work in perfect equilibrium with their environment. Because of the pandemic, this is a socially distanced conversation. I'm in Washington, DC, and Patrick is in his studio in North Carolina. Before we begin, we acknowledge that Dumbarton Oaks sits on the unceded land of tribal nations. We thank the original caretakers of this land and their descendants who are still here today. So Patrick, thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me. Um, I'd like to start by asking how you got interested in making art in the first place.
1: Well, uh, first of all, I um, when uh, when you call me, I remember Dundart and Oaks as if it were yesterday. So it was amazing to me that it was two thousand and ten when we started working on it. And so, you know, I was I was flabbergasted because I remember so well the people that helped me, my, my assistants there, and and John and his uh, input in all of our struggles in finding materials to actually build it, you know? So um, just to speak a little bit about, um, you know, my entry into the art world was that, uh, you know, early on, I would say that my my career has, has been outside the gallery system. It's been a kind of an alternative way of maturing as an artist and for your work to mature Early on, uh, someone at UNC where I was going to school, I went back to school for a couple of years of postgraduate education because I, I had no art experience and needed to kind of gin up and find out what the art world was about. And we had a visiting artist and she said, well, you know, it's as easy to be a national artist as it is to be a local artist. The only difference is you have to be in the nation. And so I've spent the last 40 years traveling Continuously and being in the nation, you know, with lots of rental cars and and uh, uh, many different beds, and we're away from home, or I'm away from home, three weeks out of every month. So it's been an arduous journey, but a really gratifying, gratifying one. You know, the uh, you know when I was in back in school uh, and I started working with sticks. uh, Uh, People would say to me, well, you need to take this work to New York City or you're not going to get anywhere. And then the next person would advise, if you take it there, someone is going to take it away from you and do it better than you. And so not only did I think about being in the nation, I thought about being completely in the nation. And, you know, it's been great for me to find out that there are big buildings and smart people everywhere and that, you know, to spread the love and to see the reaction uh, no matter whether you're in a rural community or in an urban area, you know, people are interested in a exciting sculptural uh, installation. They really respond well, whether you're in Japan, Korea, Australia, Sweden. You know, there's just a kind of commonality in some of the ways that we grew up and played with sticks as children. And even beyond that, uh, the deeper resonance of, of our hunting and gathering past kind of blossoming through, certainly in childhood where, uh, all of a sudden, uh, kids know everything about sticks. It's a tool, a weapon, a piece of a wall. And, you know, there's, it's a, it's an imaginative object. So, uh, one thing that has helped my work generally is that, uh, people have good feelings and deeper, uh, fantasies about sticks starting in childhood, but also, uh, they resonate with, uh, basket making and uh, all kind of primitive furniture and garden art and, you know, flower arranging and, you know, even in the Middle Ages where uh, people made, you know, castle walls out of wattle and daub. So, you know, I, when I first started um, messing around with the material itself, I really wasn't aware of all these traditions. And so Uh, you know artists uh, what they do is they just go ahead and do things and make up the reasons later and that's a little bit uh like me when somebody is well how did you get started i said like i just i don't know wow you know it was kind of necessity and also uh expedient use of material you could find this material under power lines so i thought well i'll i'll try to use it you know
0: so take me take me then back to the first work that you created using using sticks
1: Uh, Well, of course, there was uh, uh, some kind of uh, fooling around and gathering some things and trying to see what the material would do. But the first significant work wasn't long in in coming, and that was that I made something uh, on my picnic table and took it into the student art show. And uh, because I'd been fooling around so much in school, the folks thought that I couldn't have possibly made it uh, because it seemed so really good you know and uh it seemed easy to make so i since it was easy i thought well it can't be any good uh but the curator from the north carolina museum uh came to the show and uh there was a north carolina artist show it's a triennial that they used to have for the state artist and he said well why don't you put this in this in the show and uh, of course uh they're Uh, juror was from the LA County Museum and he said, well, this is the best work I've seen all year. So, you know, that immediately different museums and so forth around North Carolina said, well, hey, hey, we'll give you a show. And I said, well, I don't have any work. And they said, well, you've got three weeks, make some. So, you know, I was able to uh, start, you know, getting some traction uh, pretty quickly. And uh, then through a series of applying for shows, grants, um, you know, fellowships and exhibitions, I was, my work was really hurtled into the, into the limelight. Um, so, you know, it ended up finally Ben Barton Oaks in 2010. So
0: when, I-, I love what you say about, and, 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 um, the way your work does touch at something that's that is very innate to all of us and that there there is sort of this communal experience like you said that you you experienced the work in australia or korea or japan in pretty much the exact same way do you think that that was something that you discovered pretty quickly um or was that something that that ended up realizing the way that people engaged with your work did, did that come later
1: uh, well, yeah, I think that that I probably inherently felt it myself, so that was a starting point, and then uh, your awareness of of what people think, uh, it, it it's kind of cumulative. Uh, one of the other parts of my work, uh, what I would say characteristics, is that uh, I've been very interested in accessibility, and so not only. Uh, one one aspect of that was partnering with organizations. And so in a way that's about barring sugar from your neighbor, because if you uh, get your organizations to be more involved in your installation, you know, they care more about it. And so it it came to pass that they had, uh, you know, volunteers that wanted to do different things like help me gather, and then that moved all across the barrier to volunteers helping me and so I always say it's hard to hate a work if your neighbors are, are working on it. So, you know, it was a way of, uh, of building an emplacement in a community uh, because there was vested interest by the people that lived there and also the organization that was was sponsoring it, using their goodwill and their leverage in the community to organize various things that we would need to, pro- to produce the uh, the work. And not only that, you know in my work there's no studio doors to close no place to hide so um you know we invite people we we resist putting a fence around the sculpture because it's not that dangerous and so people can walk up to us and say, say something to us uh you know at will they they and and that happens all the time and, and in every installation there's just kind of a flood of people uh talking to us during the installation period and, uh, you know, I always say that the people that are calling the police the first day are inviting you to dinner the last day. So we, in a way, I try not to necessarily dispel people's uh, disbelief about the sculpture as it starts to develop. You know, I hope that it, it holds its own um, so much and develops a kind of a, 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 a sense of uh, drama and you know that that it will win the population over you know and become uh endeared to them because they like it better and better i think there is a a
0: piece you did i'm forgetting exactly where uh where you spoke about sort of creating friends for the sculpture um which and i i just loved that thought that, that you're creating vested interest in the piece vested support
1: i think that that's that's been uh, part and parcel of it and uh I would say that the third thing that's really characteristic of my work is that I do temporary work. And part of it is, uh, you know, because I feel like that the crucial part of art making and also enjoying a piece of work is not about buying and selling it. It's really uh, about the way it makes you feel uh, when you encounter it. And then since you can go into these works and they're big works, and, you know, you uh, you embrace them as though you were a full-grown person with your whole body. And, you know, you brush the sides and cause it to, uh, you know, give off odors. And, I mean, you know, like wood smells from the nat- natural world. Uh, so, you know, there's a way that uh, that it's worked out, that there's kind of a life cycle to these works. And, uh, you know, that uh, even though when I first started that that wasn't something that the— th- that, uh, sponsors really appreciated, you know, they were thinking, well, how can we extend the life of it for eight years or ten years, you know. Uh, but, you know, on the backside of that, uh, which is another conversation, is that uh all these works that people pay for in uh, public situations have to be maintained and often the maintenance costs of the of of a permanent work is, you know, may outweigh the cost of the work by tenfold in, in fifteen years, you know. And also, there's this idea of that uh sculptures wear their space out. you know they're viewing the viewers just tire of the sculpture, so oftentimes when you're on a college campus and you say to somebody, "Have you seen that sculpture down the way?" Nobody's really seen it again because it's it's just kind of fallen and become furniture for the in the landscape or light poles or you know, it, it no longer counts if you move the sculpture somewhere else. It may take on a new context. So, you know,
0: well, there's something fleet. There's something fleeting in general about experience, right? And and it's in 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 your pieces, you're really bringing that to the forefront in a way that I think a lot of art objects do not.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, you know, it's been a pleasure in a way. It's a it's uh, of course things. You know, when I first started, my work was seen as a bit more uh, fringy, you know, if you can imagine, and that, uh, you know, that that the material was considered to be more like art program, you know, that these were found objects that you were kind of conscripting into something, an illusion. Uh, But as time has gone on, the context for this work has changed, you know, installation work became, uh, you know, a big thing. you know, land art in Europe was was championed, you know, and they tried to make it into a huge movement. And, uh, you know, now it's uh, a part of uh, people's anxiety about the, you know, the world at large and and uh, loss of species and, you know, environmental degradation and so forth. Um, and also, I think uh, one thing that you, uh, you might not think of is that, you know... Uh, it's it's a way, it's a touchstone for agrarian life. And many people like myself had grandparents who lived on the farm, and this is kind of farm work in its own way. Um, oftentimes, uh, lately we were working in Cary, North Carolina, and uh, it's it's just the park is surrounded um, by upstart housing, you know, thousands and thousands of, of houses that just don't have any context for them and one of the residents came over and said i noticed that you made that with your hands like your real hands and you know there there that's really uh, uh you know her ancestors would have been uh you know pitting cherries and all kind of work that was just so cumbersome and, and this work has this kind of mantra of of working you know in a kind of repetitive way but you know there's huge uh there, there's a lot of value uh, to repetitive work and the way that it it uh, makes the human feel when they do it So in terms of your
0: process and in terms of repetition, do you when you, uh, when you encounter a site for the first time, do you have a, do you have a process that that you rely on for each of those works?
1: Well, um I would say that you know we're in a longitudinal study what you did the first day, and what you do the last is way different, and some of that gets just becomes part of your process becomes part of your thinking, you know, but initially, and I still do this a bit, like I try to remember how I feel when I see a site, you know, and I often honest up my idea with how I felt about the site um i'm you know i wanna I want something that plays well. Uh, and part of the success of a work is whether the scale is appropriate to the site. Uh, you know, it's the context the work is in, and uh, it's how um, if it's how you gauge the public that's going to receive it, as well as the tolerance of your organization for various kinds of work. You know, uh, once someone said to me, "Well, you know, I don't we don't want anything kind of racy here." And it hadn't been that long before that I had seen the Kama Sutra Garden in India. And I thought, well, I could do it. it there is a possibility here. <laughs> so uh, I've tried to I to play to the the uh, feelings of, of the, my site. But also, you know, a lot of what I designed has to do with the materials that I can get and just the logistics of, you know, who's going to help me and are they really gonna help me? So I've worked with nascent organizations and well-developed organizations trying to help them help me. And so some of those resources are unknown when you arrive. You There have been promises made, but we've seen promises broken many, many times. So the, the thing to do is to try to ahead of time to uh, try to understand what the possibilities are. You know, you wanna maximize uh, whatever you can do we we work for 3 weeks you want to maximize those 3 weeks you don't want to be sitting around a week and do all the work in 2 weeks so it's a bit of a knack to come up with an object or a group of objects that take all your time use your uh your resources well uh, make everybody happy you know your sponsor happy and that the public comes running and they're like oh my god i love this work you know so all of those things are 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 figured into your subconscious and, you know, your calculator in there and you try to figure out what to do that's going to, you know, push your limits as a sculptor because you want to make new things, uh, you know, that epitomizes something about the site often by, uh, you know, maybe mimicking shapes and so forth uh, or even, uh, well, you know... uh, Intangible, the kinds of feelings that you have, in epitomizing those, and but they're re, they are, they read to the public, even though it's not that clear what they are. You know, um, also uh, some things that are important to to sites is, you know, like um, if you work on a college campus, uh, no one's going to go into a field and see uh, the uh, the work. You know, it needs to be where people stumble over it. They need to be, it needs to be near a sidewalk, and so if the first part of it might be something that you'd walk into inadvertently or just stick your head in and then find yourself at the other end, which might be 100 feet from the sidewalk, you know. So, you know, teasing people into, into your sculpture is a knack and trying to position them so uh, there's best view uh where people start seeing them. Um, Also, the safety concerns, you know, we want to build things that people can get in and out of easily and that uh, they can preview who's in there. So there's all kinds of like just low level things that make people more or less comfortable uh, when they experience a work. I think
0: what you're saying about uh, this like lead in or, you know, the Suddenly you find yourself a hundred feet away, immersed in this other world. I, what I love so much about your work is its transportational quality. That it not only, in that case, is it drawing you in out of your sort of quotidian routine, but then once you arrive there, you're in this entire, you're, you're transported to this other world. And that that's, I think, both a physical one in terms of the sculpture, but also an emotional uh, one in terms of, you know, the way it makes one, the, the feelings that it elicits it elicits in each
1: of us. I think so. And, and, you know, we really try, I really try hard at, uh, you know, building things that satisfy me and feel like they're right. And then I find that the public, you know, can uh, catch up with those, that imagery, with the, those feelings, uh, you know, with the illusions that are that are cast there, and we try to do something new each time, uh, but uh, you know, and try to work with only this material, but to try to form it, form it up into things that that change and look really su- substantially different from one place to another.
0: So, uh, getting to the to the Dumbarton Oaks work, um, I know you were invited by John Beardsley as part of the. A uh, contemporary art installation program, but talk me through a little bit of the process uh, when you arrived at Dio, and choosing choosing the site and 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 your impressions of the estate when you when you got there.
1: Well, you know, uh, of course, we get I get there and we have to we have to see the whole gardens, you know. So you see the swimming pool. There's you know you see uh, you hear what I, uh, I think Simmons had worked before me maybe. And so his idea was played out. John told me what, what he was thinking or what he had done. And then um, we, we go down to the, there's some kind of pool down at the bottom of the hill. We had to look at that. Well, this thing is not working that well. We're gonna get it fixed. I don't think you should work here. But I had been to Dunbarton Oaks when I was a student in the 1981, 82. And I had been in the Ellipse and you know, I kept urging John to go down to the Ellipse, but we were messing around in all these other places. And like there's small lawns here and there. So, well, you could work on this lawn and you could work down the hill. And we got over to the Ellipse and I, and I said, John, this is where I wanna work. I've been here before, this is fantastic. It'll take a large amount of material. It'll take a big effort to do it, but I think I could work here and he said, well, you know, we really don't think much of the ellipse right now. It's just not what we want it to be. And the ellipse, as you know, is a, is a series of hornbeam uh, trees, uh, European hornbeams, that are kind of hooked together and make this this huge circle.
0: Aria, the aerial hedge, yeah.
1: And then you have a lawn between it. And, you know, it took me a, a few weeks to think that maybe what I should do is to try to coast along the hedge. And so I thought, well, I want to entangle with the front of the hedge and coast it, but how am I gonna get my my coasting sticks up there? So I decided that I would use little groups of, of, of small, you know, cabanas or, you know, big uh, or some kind of little uh, things. And I would group threes and twos and I would do that all the way around and the tops of them would flare up and start coasting uh, around the entire inside of the ellipse, it was a big. It was a big work, and we really had to struggle mightily to finish it. Particularly finding the amount of material that that we needed. I had an assistant at the time, Andy, uh, and he was great. And uh, also we had somebody uh, from, well, let's see, oh, we had Walter from Dunbarton Oaks, who had been a gardener that had come and followed my work for a, a long time. He, you know, I think it was... He'd
0: worked on other projects with you, right? I, I just spoke to him about, about the work yesterday, because I, I know that he was there. I mean,
1: and he's the one that climbed up in the tree and took that uh, overview, you know? Oh, but he was very enthusiastic. And uh, and so between uh, Andy and, and Walter, and Walter worked on a little bit. Mainly, he worked out the kinks of getting things into the gardens and you know we had to walk everything down to the site because there was no way of just you know transporting uh, the material. We had to take the leaves off of the trees, and so because of the time, it was in September. And so getting all of that material cleaned up and taken down there was a was a huge uh, undertaking. And then we had to drill holes you know uh, to carry the the, uh, the structural bits. Of these uh, pieces that rose up out of the ground and went into the hedge, and so all of that, you know, was a great deal of logistical support getting the scaffolding. All the scaffolding had to be carried down there, so he helped with a, a tremendous amount of just the logistic. As as did everybody. All the garden staff was incredibly supportive, you know, and uh, ultimately we had a lot of the fellows get involved as well, and was really great because you know they. Kind of can be kind of standoffish. They have other interests, uh, but people would come down in the evening and look at what we were doing, and you know, were very enthusiastic. Uh, we I love that
0: photo that you you shared of of you with all of the volunteers. It's an incredible shot.
1: And I have to say that the gal on the end, I believe, was named Georgina, and her husband was a big contributor to Dunbarton Oaks. gave a lot of money, and she was by and far the best volunteer I have ever had. You know, she had a complete and utter capacity with sticks. Here she's, you know, got a lofty place in the world and she was able to use the most basic material in a magical way. So I was just really thrilled uh, to meet her and to meet the, and to see how things lay low in people. You know how their capacities and uh, their abilities to work with the materials unknown to them, and so she seemed like she had a direct connection with our, with our distant past. You know,
0: where did the uh, saplings come from at the at Dumbarton? We
1: we had uh, uh, several uh, sources. We used. Uh, I'm going to make a look at. Uh, we used. Uh, Cumberland. Fort. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, a timber service, tree service, which was really a, I believe, uh, more or less of a landscaping situation. And then, uh, and John and I went out with some the state foresters from Virginia, and they were trying to help us. And so Cumberland Forest yielded some of our material. Uh, well, they helped arrange that, and then we didn't have enough, so these folks who lived down in Richmond, managed to find some other lots that needed clearing and we managed to get another huge infusion of limbs from there. And ultimately there was a a, um, landscape situation up in Maryland and they were taking down a number of red maples. And so we sent a crew up there to cut all the side limbs off of these big trees that they were cutting down. I, you know, and I... I really think Walter was uh, part and parcel of getting all that material up to us. So uh, that that was great. And we just needed a lot of it, and it just kept coming. So, um, you know, and it took an enormous amount of work by the volunteers to clean it and get it down there to us. And we were ravenous uh, u- uh, users of the sticks, you know. And then we had to have scaffolding, and we coasted the scaffolding all along and had to intertwine up into the branches of the existing trees, which, which I love it because it seems to lock the sculpture into the landscape itself. There's, you know, real reciprocity there. That, the, the landscape is carrying and adding to the, adding to the feeling of the sculpture, you know, and we were enhancing it and it was enhancing us. So there there was a just huge interplay and, you know, just its own configuration of circularity and everything gave us just such a great foil uh, to play with. Would you would you call it symmetrical the piece or not? Well, the the ellipse. I don't know if it's circular or elliptical. Honestly, I can't remember that. Uh, but the yes, the the work plays into the symmetry, uh, the geometry of the site itself. You know, and uh, kind of blends this kind of erratic stick work that uh, has a mind of its own into something that was uh, where you took landscape and made it into a man-made situation. You, you, you controlled it uh, into a geometry that it doesn't normally have. So playing this kind of waywardness uh, off of the geometry that's there was, you know, a subtle interplay between sculpture and, and sight. It's interesting because I think
0: of the ellipse as being one of the most formal spaces in the garden and almost the most monumental in the way that it's organized. Um, and, I, and I think that your piece was extremely successful at joining the, this uh, a sort of hyper-designed, very architectural, built environment
1: with something that was extremely natural and effervescent. And, you know... Uh- the The problem is, is, is how to address the scale of the of this of the ellipse. Uh, we didn't let it outweigh us, but we did count. You know, I mean, it counted in the in the uh, grand scheme of the of the ellipse, which was, I think, was that mediation of trying to find because you know we are only human. We can't build something in three weeks that's you know that uh, that's gonna be so big that it's like a university building. You know but the subtlety of, of playing close, you know, holding it close to the vest, running it up on the thing again and again, uh, you know, entanglement and uh, the contrast between, like we were saying, the, the saplings, a, a kind of a native uh, stick and then these kind of conscripted sticks that are being worked into kind of man-made uh, architecture, you know. I love the contrast between that.
0: Tell me a little bit about uh, the decision to name the piece Easy Rider.
1: Well, we always name the piece at the end. I always say we because I'm always running around to everyone and saying, what do you think it ought to be called? You know, and they say, oh, well, uh, how about Stick Castle? (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of other really bad Bad names, but what it is, is that you get the first line of association with it. And then sometimes what people say will lead you to another uh, level of association. You know, that's how designers work. Generally, they, they start with one association and try to travel with it through a number of other associations. till they arrive at something that's, you know, that they hadn't really thought of to begin with. Um, so I don't know, you know, titles come to me about the third week, about the last minute. And so I thought about how, you know, it, the saplings found themselves up on the, on the ledge and they were moving around. So the idea of the ease of it and the writing part of it uh, seemed to fit and make a good title and lock everything together. It's almost like a carousel. It's really like a carousel. That is so true. And you've got the center core um you know fountain to as the as the hub for the thing. You know, I I really like the piece. I in terms of, you know, the monumentality, I was not really clear that we could make something that would count there. Uh, you know, but we've managed to turn the ellipse itself into the sculpture.
0: This is this is diverging a little bit from from the DL work. Uh, but in terms of facilitating interaction and process based work this is a, it's a big question but what do you think what do you think makes a sculptor
1: well i always say a good sculpture is one that causes lots of personal associations that th- there has to be starting points somewhere so that the house painter and the fine arts painter both can connect and have some kind of reverberation within them about it It could be smell. It could be memory banks that come into play. It could be long lost feelings, you know. Um, I think for this kind of work, uh, people have uh, a certain feeling that when they look at a garden path and there's sunlight hitting it and it's someplace to go that, you know, it's really excites your imagination. Like, well, I could go there. And so there's a lot of ways that a sculpture needs to tempt To tempt the viewer, uh, you know, and to uh, unsettle to a certain degree, so I think that work that does not naturally or might be so strange that people don't really understand it that well, it it needs some starting points so that there's ways of entering it. Sometimes I think it has to do with the signage, you know, in museums. Sometimes you can people can understand the context for something and then they can appreciate it you know, more, Um, you know, uh, I I remember, you know, early on in my, when I was a student seeing a Russian constructivist show, some in a big museum, and then seeing 120 or 30 years later. And, you know, the different feelings that I had about the same kind of show, you know, one, I didn't quite understand what the hell it was. And then later after I had lived a long time through uh, and thought a lot about you know, materials and making and illusion and casting uh, feelings, you know, I was able to feel an enormous difference uh, about it. You know, I always feel like a a sculpture and art in general is, is should be transportive, that it should uh, allow you to to, uh, extend your ability to feel. You know, so if you read a novel about uh, uh, irony and then all, you see irony everywhere. You know, if you're in a sculpture that might might be catching you, uh, and you don't really have that wor- the words necessarily for it, maybe, but it, it moves you in some way, you know, it, it captures you a little bit. Then, it, you know, the next thing you see, you're just a little bit more available. You're able to feel a little bit differently. You know, so I think that sculpture in general and good sculpture opens the world, you know it allows you to maybe take a baby step towards thinking conceptually and symbolically. Uh, you know, it moves you over into uh, other mind spaces uh, that you haven't visited.
0: You know, you talk a little bit about the te- the sort of temporary nature of your work and its, its lifespan. So what, for you, is what was the decision like to relinquish control after you know just sort of step away from it, and how how did you arrive at that in your practice?
1: Uh, you mean in, in in terms of allowing other people to help me, or that in
0: terms of in terms of the, the pieces deterioration?
1: Oh yeah, well you know I've got a sense of humor, and so you know that pe- things rise and fall. You know there there are life cycles. Uh, the intensity. For the artist is the making you know nobody rereads their novel that they write you know they write it and move on and the novel then becomes a property of those who read it and so you know a good sculpture you make it you've gotten your pleasure you know out of the thing and then it becomes the property of the public to discuss it and decide its relevance really and how much they're going to like it and you know and and uh, as as these sculptures run through their life, I think uh, people, uh, you know, they they appreciate the tentative nature of it. They feel the angst of the thing potentially going down. You know, uh, they they bring you pictures of their kids running around at them or their grandma looking out the window, and they say, "I, I hated it when that thing came down." Uh, you know, so there, there's a way I think that I've resolved myself to, to temporary. I feel like I'm temporary, you know, that uh, that the best of making is the time you're making. And uh, the best for viewing is just after something is made and that it's, that it's full of energy and vigor and attractiveness and illusion, you know, and that people are really using it up. The act of consumption almost. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're they're taking the ideas that are embedded in it and they're just, you know, they're working on them like the earthworms work on things, you know. And uh, then after a while, it's just, uh, it's more of a shell.
0: Um, so my, my last question for you, Patrick, is one that I like to ask all of the people that I sit down to talk to, um, all the artists, and that is what can institutions and curators be doing better?
1: Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, i since my, my career has run kind of parallel uh, to the uh, places where, you know, normal curators go for deciding, you know, who they're gonna have. I mean, basically they're, Force really into looking at galleries and and basically checking out the work that's available for their shows, you know. Uh, whereas uh, the way that initially, of course curators call me now, but because but it's based on seeing the work. They've seen the work somewhere, they see it, they see it, they see it, they, oh my God, why don't we get them to come over here? But initially it was their board members that would say, well, why don't we have this person come? I saw it, I loved it. And the curator would say, well, I'm not that interested in that work. He he doesn't have a gallery, you know? So, um, you know, I probably my bid would be to uh, for curatorial people to look a little further afield and make sure that they're not closing out some of the options of people that haven't arrived yet and haven't found themselves, uh, you know, with the possibility of galleries. Of course, when you're in a gallery, you mature. And so it's a little bit harder to mature, and for your work to mature outside of a gallery because you don't have the opportunity. It's just so happened that my work was uh, so popular uh, that I've been able to work for forty years every day, and you know it. It uh, the lure of it caused more people to want it uh, to come, so I had plenty of work and con- continue to have plenty of work. And so I'm not against. I'm not against gallery. Gallery people or gallery work because it they're doing an enormous benefit of, of providing lifelines to curators and institutions about where to find people. And those people are really vetted, you know, because they have to go through a kind of a long-term process of observation before uh the gallery is really willing to take a chance with them, you know. Uh but I I think a lot of the nature-based artists. And people that were in, you know, uh, in Europe and so forth, uh, they a lot of those folks really fell outside the system, and uh, they they really uh, did not, uh, they weren't promoted through gallery um, association. You know, they were promoted from one sculpture park to another. Uh, kind of rogue uh, folks deciding that they were going to be nature based sculpture park, or they were going to have nature-based shows, and to some degree, I participated in that. In other degrees, they were a little bit um, clear that Americans were not their fave in those systems, you know? So, uh, you really didn't get the opportunities that a lot of the the folks that were promoted in in Europe got, but still, in all, enough.
0: I think it's interesting to consider the way that uh the natural environment becomes a gallery space in a way and the way in which one can facilitate the interactions between visitors to that environment and the objects that we put in it in the same sense of visitors to a gallery and and you know interacting with art objects the same sort of reverence and that's that's been something we've really tried to work at work on at d.o is Thinking of the garden as a whole, and the outside as a work of art, as an art object, Um, and that that is that is the ethos with which we approach the environment.
1: I think that's true, and you know, uh, uh, some sculpture parks like uh, will put an object out and build a build an environment around it so that there's resonance with it. Sometimes, uh, other sculpture parks like uh, the De Cordova tried to really take an object and keep moving it around until they found the appropriate resonance with this with the the space itself you know um, I don't know that sometimes you know that this the sculptures can be just like you know if there were too many things in the gallery and not enough white space the work wouldn't really show up you know you're you're like focusing on it because there's no interference and a lot of times for sculptures that or, or made out of natural materials, not not a uh, steel object like Martin DeSuevo said in a garden, uh, you know, sometimes you find that there's a huge amount of interference uh, from the landscape around it. And so you have to work hard at trying to distinguish the object from the landscape so that that there's some way that, it, and I think that uh, the work we've made Easy Rider is a good compromise in that. You know, we we recognize and we admit the landscape we uh, you know we somehow partnered with it uh so that you know you feel uh like the, the ellipse wasn't diminished and but, and the, but the sculpture wasn't diminished by or um, made smaller and insignificant by the the colossalness of the, the ellipse so uh sometimes if you're working i remember working in ness gardens and on the world in england and the gardens were so beautiful, I think, I said, I can't work here. So I went off to the edge where there was no competition with the beauty and, and built something, you know. I mean, I chose a site that didn't have so many fantastic flowers, you know, because they just were riveting and no one would ever look at anything but but the beauty, uh, the topiary, the, uh, you know, the flowers, the the absolute geometry of the paths and so forth you know
0: well Patrick thank you so much for sitting down with me um, this has
1: been an extremely illuminating conversation really really appreciate it Oh thank you very much you' my best to John and to all of the other uh, folks that showed in the in the gardens there and to anybody that you know that was there during the time
0: uh, I certainly will I will pass I will pass your salutations on to Walter.
1: Yeah, you tell Uh, Walter I'm thinking of him.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Patrick's work, you can visit his website at www.stickwork.net. For more information on the Dumbarton Oaks Garden Art Installation Program or for updates on the museum and gardens, visit our website at www.doaks.org or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dumbarton Oaks.